This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy panel. And you can tell an election is in the offing because the conservatives, the progressive conservatives are making funding announcements at breakneck speed. Uh, and the opposition's making campaign promises at about the same pace. And as with federal government, housing is a key. And just this morning, the province and the city announced cooperation on a development that's been in the planning to some extent since 2019. And we'll see a residential and commercial community around the East Harbor Station of the Ontario line. The municipal affairs minister was even touting his very controversial ministerial zoning orders as a means to get housing built. A lot of people don't like those things. Meanwhile, yesterday, the chief medical officer of health for Ontario told us that this wave of COVID will continue through the end of May and it's expected to worse with triple the current number of ICU admissions. So my question is, will that do anything to derail the government's election campaign? And what do you think? The numbers 416 Toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. And now to the strategy panel: Karen Stint, CEO of Variety Village; John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner; Fleischman Hillard High Road; and Charles Bird today, Managing Partner at Earnscliff Strategies, to discuss all of this and more. Hi, everyone. Welcome. Hi, Libby. Hello. Hi, Libby. Well. Uh, let us begin with uh, Charles. We haven't we haven't talked for a while. So, what do you make of the pace of funding announcements, even though we're not in the official campaign? Uh, it's like a giant hose of cash sort of <laughs> doing a pinwheel motion from the front lawn of Queens Park, covering nearly every part of uh, of the province. Uh, not unprecedented in the lead-up to elections on the part of incumbent governments, um, but uh, notable given that we are expecting um, an Ontario budget in the coming weeks, probably the week of April 25th, right before the writ is dropped. And all of this, of course, is happening in the midst of a, of a sixth wave of COVID where there are very real concerns, as expressed by Dr. Moore yesterday, that we could see as many as 600 people in ICUs, which would really take us back to some of the horrible numbers we were seeing just last year. And I think it's the it's the wild card in the election, which is to say that, you know, past Ontario elections have generally seen incumbent governments reelected for a second term. Uh, but COVID might just change the dynamic. Um, there's you know, obviously the Ford government had some very significant problems around testing and especially around long-term care facilities. And it could be that um, if the sixth wave really does crest during the, the election campaign itself, it could have a defining impact on, on uh, voter intention. Karen, do you agree? And I'm wondering, you know, that these really mixed messages on mask mandates, the uh, Kieran Moore said, really, people wear a mask, but we're not going to have a mask mandate. And uh, what surprised me was that the city of Toronto, which wants one, doesn't have the power to institute a mask mandate. Even the premier saying people wear a mask. But I don't know, are they thinking that if people don't have to wear masks, they'll forget that there's a big wave of COVID? No, I don't think so. I, um, you know, my view of it is that, um, you know, people, people are, are managing their own level of risk. 
and the government is saying, you know, there's there's still risk out there. If you want to manage it um, properly, you should wear a mask. But they're also now letting people make their own decisions around what level of risk they're willing to, to work with. And also combined with the fact that, you know, a lot of people have COVID and have recovered from COVID and they may not feel the same need to wear a mask. And so there's lots of things that are happening around people's understanding of uh, what it means to live with COVID and live with this variant. And um, I think that it is, to, to, be con- to be honest with you, I think people know, like, if, if I'm going into a crowded place, I should probably wear a mask. That being said, I was at the Blue Jays home opener and there were 56,000 people in the stadium, completely sold out crowd. And I would say 5% if we're wearing a mask. Really? You know, uh, absolutely. You, you and I go to different places because almost everywhere I go, I see people wearing masks and it's people of all ages, including yeah. young people. Yeah. John, do you think this issue of masks and COVID will uh, throw a wrench into the government's election plans? I think it certainly has the potential. You know, election campaigns are so unpredictable, and, and you can go in with a significant lead, and, and it can be evaporated pretty quick. We've seen that at, at all levels, and it doesn't matter who the incumbent government is. So there, there's always some level of unpredictability, and, and of course, COVID can certainly be that that outlier that will um, uh, that will cause some problems with with respect to the incumbent government. I think the problem is is that. Um, you know, we're not seeing necessarily anything that is changing people's perception of of the of the premier and of the government with with, with respect to voter intention. Certainly, in the, some of the polls that we've seen, because I think in large part, you know, Stephen Del Duca does not have an answer for this. He never has, right? There's never been somebody who's been able to say to Stephen Del Duca, "What would you do differently?" You know, and yeah, you can complain and say, "Well, this wasn't done fast enough," or "We're not spending enough money on this." And you know, he was part of the government for the last 15 years that that you know led to. A lot of the problems with long-term care facilities, right? And then you've got Andrew Horvath and the NDP, who constantly just refuses to do anything but but just complain about stuff, and that's a, that's a problem. So, you know, people are going to say, "Look, we know that the premier has had some issues with respect to some problems, but he's by and large been the, probably the most cautious premier." out of all the premiers across Canada with respect to opening and restrictions and even mask mandates. And you're speaking about mask mandates, Libby, I'm 100% with Karen on this. And I think that we've gotten to a point now where we're now going into the third year of this. We just finished the second year of, of, of COVID. And people are much more aware of, of what's happening. Scientists, uh, doctors are, healthcare professionals are, governments are. And no matter what you do by way of mandating anybody, you can't mandate people to take shots, but you can tell people to take shots and make it accessible, as governments have. And the vast majority of us have gotten vaccinated. But with mask mandates, I think if you tell people you have to wear a mask, people are just going to say, you know what? No, I will do what I, what I want to do. So I think you can suggest and recommend and highly suggest to people, as governments have, to wear masks. And the vast majority of, of Ontarians are wearing masks. But yet mandating them, I think, is beyond where we are right now. You know, hospital stays are shorter. People are getting vaccinated. There's a fourth shot, fourth booster shot that's happening now. And there's antivirals that are being used. So people are now at a stage where let me determine how best I can deal my life knowing that the vast majority are still going to get shots and are still going to wear masks. Well, and and speaking of the shots, Charles, you know, uh, a lot of the health care experts say there was a mixed message that two shots is fully vaccinated and people have to get their third shot because two shots aren't going to do it against the current variants. And and now as of uh, as of yesterday, basically, fourth shots are available, but but we don't have such a good rate of third shots. No, it's it's a big problem, and a lot of a lot of it has been, you know, the degree of misinformation that's been spread about um, the vaccines that are available, which have proven enormously effective, which have lessened the impact of COVID from those who had the vaccine and actually contracted COVID. Um, and it's it's very very disappointing, but it's also the age in which we live, where you know distorting reality for political gain is just is just the way of the world these days and and it's it's hugely problematic it, you know I, I would have preferred a message coming from the premier more along the lines of look at i'm not going to mandate mask wearing but i'm telling you wear a mask right it's the smart thing to do he it said something you, it protects people around you um i would have liked to have seen that emerge as sort of the emphatic message coming from him 
Um, but uh, the, the problem for the Conservatives is, is that any symbol of, of the pandemic is, is problematic, and there would be no uh, greater symbol at this juncture than doing what the city of Philadelphia did yesterday, which was to say, okay, we are returning to an indoor mask mandate because, you know, people are going to lose their lives otherwise. Hmm. Um, Karen, uh, let's turn a little bit to another aspect of the election. And one of your former colleagues on council, Kristen Wong-Tam, announced that she is going to run for the (laughs) province. I think she's acclaimed. I think she's the only, like, there wasn't a nomination race or anything pesky like that. (laughs) Yeah, for the NDP? Yeah. You know, I I, just say good for her. You know, it's just, that's where her heart and her passion is. And, um, you know, I think at the city, she's done the job that she set herself to do. And I think that she will make a contribution to the, to the party, to the, the new Democratic Party and, and represent her, her riding effectively. I think she'll probably win the seat because, uh, that's, you know, the, the area that she's in. Um, and good for her. I, I'm actually surprised that more people aren't running from council because I, I had heard some rumors that Jay Robinson was going to run for the, the Liberals and I thought Denville for sure would run for the Conservatives. And so I'm surprised it's actually just Kristen Longtown. So far. Yeah, so far. Uh, well, maybe you could explain, uh, you know, there's this sort of jumping of levels of government. Is it is it a promotion to go from being a city councillor that has the same power as other city councillors, that has, this, you know, almost the same power of the mayor in some instances, to to being a, part of the opposition? Yeah, it, so it's a, just it's a different job. And, you know, I was a city councillor for 11 years, and I had the privilege of, of being chair of the TTC. And, you know, you do a lot of things and you help your community, but at some point you need new challenges so you can continue to grow. And so whether it's a promotion or just a change of job, but, you know, the, the opportunity to potentially be a minister of, of a portfolio or to have even to be the critic and just expand your knowledge base and your, you know, understanding of provincial issues, I, you know, I see it as something that is a natural step. And, and, I, and I see counselors who stay, you know, any, only counselors can decide whether they've stayed too long or how long it is that they should stay. But, you know, there's certainly a point at which, you know, how much more really can you do in a job you've been at for 25 years if it's the same job? Yeah, that's that's you interesting. Know? Remember, there was a push to have term limits mm-hmm. for city councillors. That never went anywhere. Because yeah. at least at the province, you know, you could be a minister of different portfolios. You can have different opportunities. As, as, even as a critic, you have different, um, you know, just different knowledge base you're building. Hmm. And it was it was funny. I mean, yesterday I I was reading something about a brouhaha that uh, an NDP incumbent was pushed out in the nomination meeting. This is getting into the weeds and the party should have, you know, protected his seat. Meanwhile, you have Kristen Wong, who doesn't have to have a nomination. I mean, uh, I don't know, John, what what do you make of that? Well, this is what we call the sausage-making process of democracy. And, you know, this is the, every party goes through these kinds of, of, of machinations, you know, with, with leading up to election campaigns with nomination meetings and uh, and how to deal with incumbents. And, and some incumbents are, are stronger than others. And, and how do you kind of, you know, lay out rules that generally fit all of the all of the criteria, but you know the NDP, I think, are, are experiencing some. As you mentioned, there was a, a battle in Brampton with an incumbent who lost his seat to uh, to somebody new, and that's causing some some problems because somebody amongst the Black Caucus members of the NDP, because the incumbent was black and uh, and lost the seat. So now there's concerns about there wasn't enough protection or enough warning and that kind of stuff. So those kind of machinations do happen with all the parties. But I would say this, Olivia, you know, in, in connection to what you were saying about how you know municipal politicians tend to move up to provincial and or federal. In, in the case of Kristen Wontam, she's m- making a move to, to the provincial side of it. <clears throat> That's not unheard of, of course. You, you know, Premier Doug Ford is, is a case in point yeah. where he was a councillor and now he's Premier of the province of Ontario and others, Adam Bond, who moved from, from municipal to federal. Uh, I would say Kristen Wontam will likely win her seat. She's got high profile. It's in, it's in a pretty safe writing that it's kind of center-left. But I also think that she's positioning herself for what's going to happen next, which is the, you know, the potential eventual loss of, of Andrew Horvath. This election will likely be her last. 
uh, and there'll be a leadership race. And I suspect that there's, you know, that, that she's eyeing that potential, uh, you know, seat opening and, and position. Uh, and she'll likely have to face Merritt Stiles, who I think is the odds on favorite uh, amongst the NDP caucus as, as potentially the next leader of the NDP. Hmm. That's interesting. That's, interesting. <laughs> that's very, that's very interesting. Uh, you know, Charles, you were talking, uh, well, Stephen Del Duca and the Liberals and the possibility of high profile city councillors running for the Liberals, but they're, they're, they don't even have full party status now. How do you think they'll do? Well, they've actually had some success in terms of recruiting candidates, and one that, that comes to mind might, might not be known to all listeners, but um, Jeff Lehman, who's been the long-standing mayor of Barrie and who is just uh, he's chair of the big city mayor's caucus nationally, really, really just a, a terrific, terrific candidate uh, running for the Liberals in the northern half of Barrie. But one of the things that makes the timing of, of what's happened with the, the Ontario NDP Black Caucus so so damaging to um, Andrea Horvath is that there, there's a theory that if you take the 40% of people who rightly or wrongly just loathe Doug Ford and want him gone, um, there's a theory that says that the first week, two weeks of the campaign will effectively be a primary between the Liberals and the NDP to determine who is in the best position to take down Ford. And we saw, oddly enough, a similar dynamic in the 2015 federal election where, you know, Thomas Mulcair, leader of the NDP, was the odds-on favorite going in. There was a very strong appetite to get rid of Stephen Harper, although it only really materialized during the campaign itself. And ultimately, it was Justin Trudeau who emerged as best positioned to defeat Stephen Harper, which he did in spectacular fashion. So that same dynamic could very well happen in the Ontario campaign, in which case the first half of May will really be dedicated to a question of who's in the best position to take down Doug Ford. And so the battle between the Liberals and the NDP, especially in the 416, in those critical, critical downtown Toronto ridings, will speak volumes, as will the polling numbers. Well, uh, it's interesting you're talking about candidates. In my uh, riding in St. Paul's, we have a, a ger- geriatrician, I think he still practices a little running, Dr. Nathan Stahl, uh, I think we need geriatricians more than politicians, but that's a total aside. Uh, and it's a writing that, that it has traditionally been very good to doctors. You have Carolyn Bennett, who's been there forever federally, uh, who apparently the word was when she was first elected, and I covered that, it was because she delivered all the babies in the writing. <laughs> and we had Eric Hoskins, who ended up as the health minister, Dr. Eric Hoskins. So it is kind of fertile ground for doctors. I don't know. Oh, yeah. And that's a, li- that's- that's a writing that's going to go liberal. Um, that, that riding actually had um, came a very close second in 2018, which was arguably the worst possible election for Liberals, and Liberals still did very well there. And the NDP incumbent in that riding was absolutely outraged when um, Dr. Nathan Stahl was, was nominated as the candidate, saying, I've done a terrific job here. How dare you? run someone so capable against me. Oh. And, that, and that speaks to, and, and that's a bit of a problematic attitude, right? This is a democratic process, right? Nobody's, everyone has to run and may the best person win. But I think a lot of New Democrat MPPs around Toronto are facing the exact same fate, which is to say that, um, you know, just given the, the number of liberal federal MPs in the 416. Um, if it does boil down to that primary over the first week or so, I think the Liberals are very well positioned to emerge as the alternative to Doug Ford. Mm-hmm. I have to say that I was I was a little bit surprised in the last election when Jill Andrew, the NDP, w- was elected. But, you know, it was uh, time to get rid of the Liberals, to be honest. I don't yeah. know that there's, you know, you mentioned Harper, and uh, the provincial liberals, I I don't see any kind of similar uh, exasperation and uh, time running out for Doug Ford, frankly. Except for COVID, right? Except for COVID. 
except for COVID, and federally turning to the conservative leadership, which seems to be inching along. Now, I have to say, uh, we've seen the sniping between the more moderate side and Pierre Poilievre, who is the front runner, but uh, he's been attracting big crowds, and I've even seen it referred to in print as polyevre mania, which I don't know, is, is that accurate, really? Silence. John, yeah. <laughs> John is that accurate? Yeah, is no, there polyevre mania? Happy to weigh in. No, you know, I, I, uh, yes, I think there is some level of, of mania that, uh, that's being attached to this, and it's not insignificant by way of the crowds he's attracting. And, and you know, uh, especially during, you know, COVID and, and whatnot, you'd think the crowds would be less. And in fact, some, some venues, he's actually limited to capacity and he's got people waiting outside to get in. So that, you know, for any leadership candidate, uh, for any party, that kind of momentum or sign of interest is, is incredible. And it also, it's contagious because other people start thinking, well, wait a second, what am I missing? Why are there a thousand people there and, and, and so excited to see him? And, you know, why am I not? So should I be interested in seeing him? So there's people that might not have worked at Pierre that are looking at him now because of that. So that is a big boost. Now, of course, in a leadership race, especially in our system, which is one member, one vote, Libby, you know, you could have a thousand people in a, in, in a room, but if you only sign up a hundred people, then that's, you know, that's telling in and of itself. So you got to convert that excitement into memberships. And you've only got all the candidates only have about three weeks to go. I think June the third or fourth is the kind off of memberships. So they're working extremely hard to get those members signed up. Uh, yeah. And what do you think? It's been described to a certain extent as a generational divide, he and Jean Charest, who said uh, he broke the law or he was on the side of breaking the law with the with the truckers convoy and therefore should be uh, should should not even have a chance of this. Then I heard Tom Mulcair, the former NDP leader, calling Charest yesterday's man. I don't know. <laughs> Charles, I mean, do, does is, is this a generational shift? You know, it, it, it's hard to say because I agree with John. I mean, what Polev is doing in terms of the crowds he's attracting um, is really remarkable, uh, especially for an opposition party in the midst of a leadership campaign. Um, but those crowds are predominantly older and whiter. And it really, I think, speaks to a latent desire among a great many, and I'll use the term conservatives advisedly, but they're really looking for th- that those same elements that Donald Trump brought to American politics in 2016, which is that sort of take no prisoners, um, you know, attack, uh, belittle your opponents, just as Polev did to both Patrick Brown and Jean Charest very early on in the campaign, which I think was a mistake. I think the Polev people should have realized that they were very much in the lead and decided to play nice. But obviously that, that desire to come across as disruptive, um, and, you know, game-changing is uh, is very much in evidence with Paul Lev. But my own take on him, and I've watched him for a long time, because he's, a, he's, he's, the kid's got game, no doubt about that. Like, he is politically very astute, and he's been an MP for a long time. But Professional I, politician. I don't think uh, that he likes being identified as such. Yeah, I mean, if you want someone who's an outsider from Ottawa, I mean, he's an Ottawa MP who's been there for 100 years. Uh, mm-hmm. But I find that, you know, his tendency is to say things that have three characteristics. One, simplistic, right? Really, really boiled down to almost um, infantile proportions. Second, vitriolic. The boy is fastball to the head all the time. And third, um, self-serving. I mean, uh, what he talks about is is quite often dangerous uh, in terms of castigation of opponents. We saw it in terms of how he lashed out at Charest. And, is it, and he brought the attack from Charest on himself. And that convoy thing is a big, big issue for a lot of people who looked at what you know the people of Ottawa had to suffer through and just think, we can't have that. We just can't have that kind of disorder. So it'll be very interesting to see how it plays out, but I really think it, it, it speaks to an appetite on a certain 
on the part of a certain number of Conservatives and Canadians for a Trump figure, for the excitement of Donald Trump and for that sort of um, willingness to, to say anything for perceived short-term political benefit. But like no good comes of generating anger and hostility. I mean, Trump proved that in spades. And I, I fear we're on a similar path in Canada. Mm, I don't know if uh, we can really compare him to Trump. Also, I don't know. The, he's he's over forty. He's been a member of Parliament for a long time. I don't know. I don't know if we sh- should, you know, call him a kid either. Uh, Karen, what do you think? Yeah, I think that um, he certainly distinguished himself as being the voice of the oppressed, as it were. And so he travels around the country, and he's getting. 100% of the people who feel disenfranchised from the government right now. And, the, you know, the challenge for everybody else, like Sheree and Patrick Brown potentially, is to, you know, is to corral the other, you know, 80% of people who don't feel disaffected but feel like the government may need to be held to account. And and that's a harder, harder job. Like, it, it's really easy to stand up and stomp your feet and for the disaffected and say, I, resent, I represent you, and then he's going to get the crowd. But he's got 100% of, of that. <laughs> but but 100% of that is not going to make him prime minister. Uh, and John, do do those people who are so disaffected, uh, do they get signed up? And ultimately, do they vote if they are signed up? Well, that's the challenge, I think. So do they sign up? Yes, apparently, according from, from some sources. And I'm not on, on any on any leadership campaign, but I'm hearing it from all camps that, that memberships are increasing. And of course, a lot of them will hold their memberships until the cutoff. They don't want to give their opponents or anybody else a sense of, of how they're doing or not doing. But but yeah, I think that's the key thing for Pierre. I think if he can get those rallies, those thousands of people that go up to his rallies on a, on a, in a weekly basis to sign up, then I think he's obviously got a huge uh, advantage. Now, don't underestimate Patrick Brown. We don't hear a lot about because Patrick is an unbelievable hard worker and he you know is he doesn't make the social media rounds or the media rounds but he does he just borrows in and actually does a lot of the signing up and memberships I know I faced him once in a leadership battle uh, so he is never to be underestimated and, and never to be counted out well exactly and and he is really good at signing people up I'm looking at the clock that is all the time we have today thank you so much John Capobianco Charles Bird and Karen Stan Thanks, Thanks Bye, Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, uh, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, have you made your final arrangements yet? Well, there's a whole new option to consider. It's quite fascinating. And we will talk about natural burial when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Have you made your final arrangements yet? It's not the most pleasant thing to think about, but it ultimately makes things easier for the loved ones you leave behind. And I can tell you I've been putting off mine because of some of the complications with the choices that I would have to make. And of course, all of us, you would have to decide how and where you want to be buried or cremated, and presumably you've got to pay for it or set the money aside. Well, I was fascinated to hear about yet another option that many people want. It's called natural burial. If you have questions about it, give us a shout, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome Susan Greer, Executive Director of the Natural Burial Association, and she's here to tell us about it. Hi, Susan. Hello, Libby. Thank you for being with us. My pleasure. So what is natural burial? (laughs) Well, um, start by imagining a meadow, you know, tall grass, wildflowers, walking trails, wood benches, not a tombstone in sight. That's a natural burial ground. Then at that natural burial ground, um, the deceased is uh, firstly not embalmed, and they're wrapped in a shroud or a biodegradable casket, like an unvarnished pine box or a wicker casket. And then they're lowered into the ground. They may be lowered into the ground by their friends and family. Um, and they don't go six feet down. They go three or four feet down because that's where the rich soil strata is and where the body can, you know, return nutrients to give back to the earth. 
And then the big thing about natural burial grounds is well, also what happens above ground. The land is restored and it's protected to its uh, natural state forever. It's always protected. Um, at a natural burial ground, there's about 300 plots per acre, which is uh, way different than a um, conventional cemetery that has about 1,000 plots per acre. And as far as the memorialization, there's either, it depends on the bylaws of every cemetery, but there's going to be either a low, flat, modest uh, marker, stone marker, sometimes taken right from that land, or there's a communal marker, like a big boulder that has everybody's name on it. And the idea is that, you know, that your that legacy that you're leaving is all of that natural burial ground, not just the four by eight area where you are. And, and you can always find the family using GPS or other means. So there's no worry about if you do want to track down exactly where your loved one is. And and uh, those stone markers, how big are they? Oh, well, they're small. They, um, I mean, of course, it always varies from cemetery to cemetery. But the idea is you, it's, it's meant to look as natural as possible. So I'm going to say like 8 inches by 10 inches. Oh, okay. So it's like a sheet of paper. The yeah. Size. Yeah. With the name and the date. It's so, a very, very modest marker, and the grass will grow around it. So There's no mowing. So uh, are they legal here in Ontario? Do they exist here? Natural burial grounds? Well, yeah. And this, it's, it's never been illegal. It's just that, you know, a couple centuries ago, the industry became commercialized, right? And the, and the cemetery started to be manicured, and instead of home funerals, they moved out to funeral homes. So... This is this has existed from time immemorial. Um, the natural burial. I mean, it's a little bit different now in a natural burial ground with the emphasis on um, bringing back the nature and, and restoring it to its natural eco habitat. But um, it's always always been legal. But you're but you're asking the first question that people ask: Really, is that legal? <laughs> and it, it definitely is. It's legal, but okay. So, do any exist? I mean, you're talking about uh, times gone by, but you know, you look at any old churchyard, and and uh, the markers are definitely there, and in some cases, uh, often bigger than they are today. Hmm. Yeah, the natural burial grounds. So, there's well, there's two kinds of natural burial grounds. There's hybrids, which are attached to a conventional cemetery, and so they just create a little natural section. And there are some of those, our favorites in Ontario. There's one in Coburg, and there's a, a wooded, forested one in Picton, where on the day I visited there, I saw a deer. That's pretty cool. Waterloo and Niagara Falls. They have lovely hybrid cemeteries attached to the conventional cemeteries. But we don't have a standalone natural burial ground yet. They're the ones, there's hundreds of those in the U.S. and the U.K., and they are... In, you know, enveloped in a natural landscape, independent of any existing cemetery. And the only public standalone natural burial ground in all of Canada right now is on Salt Spring Island. But that's what we're hoping for for Ontario. That's what a lot of people want. Okay. Uh, and w- uh, to set it up, is there anything special that has to happen? In terms of, again, the legalities or licenses or anything like that? Yeah, natural burial grounds follow the same laws as everybody else. So it starts with the municipal approval, so looking at zoning, and then um, the medical officer has it to approve it. And that uh, the, the big thing that they're looking for is the water table, ensure that there's a um, at least a meter between where the body would go and the water table. And then everything has to be approved by the um, bereavement authority of Ontario. This is a special regulatory body that we have in Ontario to oversee everything to do with death, really, funerals, cemeteries, all that. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a lot. And then um, money, of course. <laughs> well, so that was the, the next question. I mean, land is at a premium. We're seeing lots of development. I mean, our our even conventional uh, burial grounds new ones, are they coming on stream? Or I I haven't heard of that. I think that among other types of land, cemetery land is probably at a premium. Yeah, no, the the, um, conventional folks aren't showing any interest in natural burial. It's not, you know, I think that there it's a different 
they do it differently. No, I understand what I'm asking. um, But yeah, but what what we're finding is that as we spread the word about natural burial, there's still lots of people that don't know about it, but people come out of the woodwork and they want to have a, a burial ground on their land, like... There's a woman who um, buries her horses on her property in West Gray County, and she'd love to be buried there and welcome other people. There's someone else in Gray Highlands and someone else near Luther March in Peterborough and St. Joseph Island near, near the Sault St. Marie. So there's these, these people that feel so passionate about it. They come forward and say, oh, I, I want to donate my land to this. Because you're like the, yeah, you're right. We, nobody could probably afford land to do this. Not, not the kind of people that um, are interested in starting natural burial grounds usually don't have deep pockets. And, uh, but I'm assuming that conventional cemeteries, they're, they're not expanding or creating new ones either, right? Um, no, they don't seem to have, they don't have any interest in standalone natural burial grounds to my knowledge, no. No, 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 I meant, I'm not saying that they would want a natural burial. I'm just saying, I don't think we're seeing any kinds of new cemeteries. You know, I just don't know. It's just, to me, it's just not something I'm interested in. Um, But um, 70% of the people in Ontario are opting for cremation. And it's cute. It's funny, like we, very gently, we try and let people know that cremation actually isn't eco-friendly because most people, of course, think it is eco-friendly because they're comparing it to the conventional burial. So when we tell people, they're like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. I thought I was doing the eco-friendly thing and now I want to be naturally buried. There was a, a woman who heard about um, natural burial and she was she said, I've always made green decisions and and then I, I read about natural burial and oh my gosh, I'm going to have to change my will. I was going to be cremated and now I want to be naturally buried. And by the way, my husband and I have a hundred acres. Can we turn that into a natural burial ground? So that's not, it's not unusual for us to hear that. Oh, and and can they turn it into a natural bur- burial ground? Every situation is different. Again, the same thing. You look at zoning and um, municipal approvals and water tables and the land topography. Um, so there's lots of hurdles, and, but um, theoretically, absolutely. Okay, let's take a call from Evie in Toronto. Hello, Evie. Hi. Um, see that. How would that work, though, if, uh, I don't know about Catholic or a Christian, but when you, you're Jewish, you, you really have to be buried or we're in a Jewish cemetery. Um, so, you know what I mean? I don't think that would work unless you had a cemetery that was, uh, you know, Jewish cemetery affiliated with the synagogue. Well, there, there are, I have to say, there, the Jews are buried in non-denominational cemeteries um, all around. And there are some interfaith uh, rabbinically sanctioned cemeteries. So I don't know that the cemetery is the issue, but uh, Evie, you bring up a very good question, uh, which we can ask Susan. So where does this stand with religious practice? Oh, well, let me, Evie, address your question directly. And boy, I wish I knew whether what I'm um, privy to say right now, but (laughs) there is a Jewish cemetery that is um, interested in creating a natural burial section because they know that there's a lot of people, uh, Jewish people who really care about the environment and this just would would really resonate with them. So, um, and, and uh, so for, for the, the, yeah, for a lot of people, it's within their faith as well, right? Because it's um, dust to dust. And, and yeah, sometimes people yeah, will write in yeah. dust to dust, or that's how Jesus was buried. And and the Muslim and Jewish faiths today, to a large degree, practice natural burial. They never embalm. It's always a very modest, simple casket or shroud. And no, I, they, I know, I know, I know about that. But um, yeah, I understand. I just that you would have to have a whole separate thing because they're all. From different uh, synagogues. Well, yeah, and, I'm and not sure that you that you would, uh, Evie. Actually, yes, you would. Yes, you would. Um, I'm not sure that's the case, but um, let Susan answer the question. So, who is interested in creating 
a natural burial ground. No, I, I just don't. Uh, oh, you mean outside of the Jewish faith? Well, speaking? well, who are you speaking to of, uh, of the Jewish faith that was you, trying you know, to No, everything has them? to go through board approval and that kind of thing. So it would be, I would say, oh, I, I really badly want to spill the beans, but I shouldn't, so I won't. Okay. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the way traditionally every synagogue had their own plot, but but a lot of those, there's space issues, uh, and there are burial grounds now out of town, and people from in town, or it's a long story, I'm, you know, the way, in terms of that, that's that's not according to law, it's sort of the way things turned out. Uh, Susan, we've got to take a break, but uh, we'll have more of this very uh, interesting conversation when we come back. And uh, I would like to know a little bit more about other religious faiths and, and what their thoughts on this are when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking about natural burial, which is an eco-friendly option to cremation and conventional burial. And I'm with Susan Greer, who's the executive director of the Natural Burial Association. And Susan, what do the most prominent religious faiths have to say about it, or are any of them embracing it? You mentioned uh, working with a Jewish group, possibly to have a natural burial ground. Uh, what, what about Christians and Muslims? Yeah, we don't really approach it from um, uh, a religious angle, um, but I have been in meetings with the Catholic Church, and you know, it fits with... Um, uh, the Christian doctrine, and um, it's the Buddhists do cremate right away because they believe that that quickly allows the body and the soul to separate. But even then, they understand they um, you know, are starting to be concerned about the planet and see the um, conflict there. But um, and Hindus uh, traditionally cremate as well. But uh, really, it's not. It's it's. We don't really approach it as, oh, this is um, a decision that's predicated on religion. We just have an idea of, a, of it's almost like small s spiritual. And um, in fact, we've even had a woman, you know, write in and say, oh, this is my true church. So we have that idea. And if it fits for the various religions, like we, you know, have been speaking to a Jewish cemetery, and I have been in a meeting with a Catholic cemetery, then that's great. But it's not. So it's not really the approach we take. We just have this idea we think is really great. Eco-friendly resonates with so many people. And of course, a lot of people don't even um, subscribe to one particular religion these days, right? So, right, you um, know, those I, people as well. I, I agree, but I, I know there are probably a lot of other people who maybe aren't that religious in their daily lives, but when it comes to something like uh, the end and, and your final resting place might sort of revert. Um, that's what I was was thinking. That's interesting. Let's get to the question of the cost. If you mm. want to buy a plot or even, uh, what do they call them for the urns, like a mausoleum or whatever, it can be extremely expensive. I know. It's it's so sad. And it particularly, I mean, for us, we feel that cost shouldn't be a barrier for somebody who wants to have a final resting place in nature. Um, yeah, the fees are outrageous in Ontario. The um, What happens, I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's a good thing that in we have a culture that really respects taking care of our ancestors. So at every cemetery, there's, when you buy a plot, a certain percentage of it goes towards the perpetuity fee so that that cemetery is always maintained. We, I think that's really nice. But what's crazy is that in Ontario, that fee is 40%. So let's say somebody buys a $1,000 plot. Oh, and 40%. good luck with that, a $1,000 yeah, plot. <laughs> yeah, so it hugely inflates, inflates the price. And it was just by coincidence, I was talking, I was phoned this um, natural burial ground in another province, and um, the guy wasn't there, and his mother answered the phone, and I said, oh, yeah, I'm just phoning to ask about this these fees. And, and she says, oh, yeah, that government, they, it's crazy how much they take. And I go, well, what do you mean? She goes, 
25%. This is British Columbia. I go, 25%? Wait, in Ontario, it's 40. And it never really occurred to us to, to see what happens in the other provinces. So then we started phoning around and we realized nobody's at 40%. You know, it's a, like 15% in Nova Scotia and Saskatchewan and Quebec at zero, um, BC 25. So the 40% is crazy high. Well, and then the other thing that we, we discovered is that in Ontario, if a new cemetery operator wants to open a natural burial ground, any cemetery, but of course we care about natural burial grounds, then they have to have in this perpetuity fund $165,000. And in every other province but Saskatchewan, that fee is zero. So crazy. Well, you're you're talking about these fees once there's a plot. So uh, we don't have a natural burial ground here, but... What are the fees to buy a plot in other provinces compared to getting a plot in a regular cemetery? Well, the the that's that's a hard question to answer because every cemetery is different. Um, there are like the natural burial ground in Niagara Falls; they charge less for a natural burial because they want to, you know, promote the idea and it is less expensive. That's the whole thing. Like it's natural burial grounds aren't high maintenance. So why would natural burial grounds be charged the same rate as conventional cemeteries? Sorry, Susan, I'm not, I'm not talking about the upkeep, upkeep. I'm talking about mm-hmm. the cost of the plot altogether approximately, or what is it? What? 25% less than buying in a regular cemetery? That's what I'm asking. That's in, it, I, I couldn't say because they vary from cemetery to cemetery. But you can imagine that, you know, that some of the urban centers like Toronto, you, you could be paying like 25000 for a plot, whereas in smaller towns and anywhere, any province, it's going to be less expensive. So it would be 25000 for a plot in a, in, in a natural cemetery in Toronto is what no, no, no. I was talking about a conventional cemetery. There is no natural burial ground yet in Toronto. Hoping right. for one. Right. But so I'm just asking in general, how much less in general, and even as a percentage, would a natural burial plot be compared to a conventional one? Well, the people that start the natural burial grounds would like to make it as affordable as possible. So it's impossible for me to put a number to that, but I'm going to say they'd like to be, say, 60%, 70% of the of the cost of a conventional burial because it's, you know, they're not looking at it as a as a dollars and cents business per se. Like, they're, they're, you know, the people who start these natural burial grounds, it's so much more. It's about protecting the environment and offering something to families that is really meaningful. So it's not, it's not somebody in a business office thinking, hey, this is a big business opportunity. It's kind of like a calling, these people who start these. So, you know, there's a... Um, Cemetery, a natural burial ground in Florida, and to keep the prices down, they um, there's a couple of them actually. They get volunteers to help to dig the graves, and and volunteers come out and do the work in the spring and the fall to take care of the land because they really want to keep the prices down as much as they can. You don't want to penalize somebody who wants their their this end of life choice that's so you know so good for the planet. So where are you at now in terms of a uh, campaign to get a natural burial ground here in Ontario? Well, there's a number of advocacy groups all around the province. They're just amazing. And um, we support them as best we can just to build awareness. Some of them are, are pitching for a hybrid in the municipal cemetery. Others have land and they want to create a natural burial ground. So that's in the works in a couple regions across the province. And still, like most people don't know about natural burial in Ontario. So we have to build awareness of that because we find as soon as people hear about it, they're like, oh my gosh, I want this. So we really have to build awareness of that. And we're also trying to make a, a lot of noise in this upcoming election because we know we've done a poll and we know that um, most, like 64% of the people polled want these high cemetery fees to be an election issue because it's uh, it's just it's they're so high and it doesn't make sense particularly for natural burials. So, so we're if, trying to address that as well and get some attention and see if we can get some 
party candidates to um, commit to bringing down the fees for natural burial grounds. And again, if somebody decides this is what they want and they said, okay, I'm going to look for and see if there are any areas set aside in municipal cemeteries, are there? Is this something that someone could find here now or we have to wait? Yeah, there are some. um, Yeah, the best thing is to go to our website, naturalburialassociation.ca, and we list what's um, the, what the natural burial grounds that are available, they're all hybrids right now, but there's still some really lovely ones that follow the tenets of natural burial. And we have a list, oh my gosh, it's probably up to a dozen of different locations where there's work, you know, there's work at play. Either there's an advocacy group that's just starting off or there's something more concrete, land that's been pegged, somebody who wants to have a cemetery on their land and it's gone through some rounds of municipal proposals. Um, so it's a uh, yeah, there are different stages in Ontario. And uh, we have uh, mm, less than a minute left. What what would you like to leave us with on this, Susan? Well, I just, um, you know, the way that you, you started the conversation saying, has, has anybody given what they're going to do um, at their end of life any thought? And it's, it's a good idea. It's a really good idea. And for it, it can really, I mean, of course, I, I favor natural burial, but we've met so many people. We get so many wonderful emails from people that's just saying, you know, I'm a gardener. What else can I say? Or um, this is a gift I can give future generations. So if it's, you know, for the, your listeners out there, if this does sound appealing, then check out our website, tell your family, talk about it. And, and you start, even if it doesn't sound appealing, it's a good idea to have this conversation with those. You know. It just makes it a lot easier. As you said earlier, for the loved ones you leave behind, if, if they know the wishes of the deceased. Hmm. Well, it's a fascinating option. And uh, as I said, you know, I certainly hadn't heard about it. And thank you so much for bringing us up to speed on this. Oh, you're welcome, Libby. Have a good day. You too. Thanks so much. Goodbye. Bye. Okay. Uh, That is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.